a Podcast One production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. My guest today is a gentleman by the name of Craig Dixon. He's the CEO of the Nomad Coffee Group and the driving force behind Veneziane Coffee Roasters in Richmond. I've been using their coffee for about 15 or 16 years now and there's a reason. It's local, it's speciality and the blends are absolutely delicious. It's a great chat about coffee, about varietals, about how we should enjoy it at its best and some of the risks about sourcing some of the best green coffee beans from around the world. Take a listen. All right, Craig Dixon, welcome to uh, A Plate to Call Home. It's my little podcast. Thank you. I don't know if anybody would know this, but I've used Veneziano probably for about 15, 16 years, so way back. And the reason we jumped on board was because we were looking for a local, fresh coffee with a difference. So that's what you guys are all about. Why do we love coffee so much? Why are people so obsessed by it? Well, it's a legal drug, so that's a good start, I suppose. <laughs> I like it. That's an unexpected answer. <laughs> We're all... Uh, the caffeine addiction. That's right. We are all addicted to it. So uh, it's the best way to start the day is to get a bit of caffeine in and get the ball rolling. So, But it's funny. Some, somebody said to me the other day that he goes, you know, when did coffee happen? Because Australia was tea drinkers. They were tea drinkers. Yeah. And we, we are a, a tea drinking culture, I suppose, thanks to, uh, you know, all your colleagues coming out here, the English and... Uh, the British. ...teaching us to drink... Um, <laughs> What do they call it? Brewing cup mentality. So we pour hot water over tea bags and we pour hot water over instant coffee. And uh, that's a little bit that's a little bit of where the problems come from of people complaining about the the temperature of coffee when we try and serve it because they're used to boiling water thanks to how we're we were educated. Yeah, so boiling water over instant coffee is what everybody drank. I think I told you, you know, in our many conversations that my dad he, he was an instant coffee drinker. I think, you know, when I look back on it, I mean, we never had soft drinks as kids. Mum didn't allow it, but for some reason she allowed coffee. So we used to drink tea and coffee from, I don't know, I reckon we were like seven or eight. Kept you wired. We would have been wired kids. I'm surprised they did it. But my <laughs> mum and dad are that mum drinks tea, dad drinks coffee, and dad will drink so many cups of coffee in a day, it's off the Richter scale. Wait, so what happened? Do you, do you remember the point? Because you're a serial hospitalitarian. You've been in the business I presume, all your life. Is that right? When did it happen? Yeah, well, you know, obviously Australia is a bit of a unique country in that it's had a lot of um, immigrants from Europe, particularly the Italians and the Greeks, and they brought espresso coffee to Australia. So some of the families that you still see around today, like the Genovese family, you know, they were some of the first people to bring import espresso machines into Australia, which was in around, I think, the mid-50s sometime is when espresso came here. So they sort of started the whole culture, I suppose, and then everyone else got on board. It's probably driven very much Melbourne initially, but certainly, you know, companies like Vittoria uh, were also very early starters in the coffee industry in Sydney. And yeah, it's become a real part of culture in Australia. I mean, we are in the specialty coffee world that we live in at Veneziano. Australia has seen one of the leading markets in the world for you know, specialty-based coffee, espresso coffee beverages, and everyone looks to Melbourne to see what's going on. And a part of that is probably the link to the importance of our food culture as well. I mean, you know a lot more about that than than myself, but linking the, 
their food and their coffee together, um, I think has, you know, just created this unique uh, situation in Melbourne where we have some of the best cafes and restaurants around. Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, I don't know about you, I'm sure you've had many more experiences than me revolving around coffee, but I've been in odd cities around the world and the barista, you know, like in Paris, for example, years ago, and I said, you know, can I get a, you know, my bad French, can I get a noisette, you know, because that's what, you know, the closest thing I could get, you know, it's a shot with a little bit of milk on it versus a terrible cappuccino. He goes, you're Australian? I go, yeah. And he goes, what do you actually want? But it's changed enormously. I mean, for example, I remember Melbourne doing good coffee and then going up to say, I don't know, Cairns, you know, on holiday back in the early 90s and hearing the, you know, loud frothing sounds of a bad cappuccino being made. And I always had a default, I think I'll have tea, please. I still have that default. So my uh, my wife hates it. We'll go out to a cafe. Everyone will start to order. Everyone will order a coffee and then I'll say, I have a cup of tea, please. And they go, uh-oh, what have you seen? What have you heard? So I've either heard that sound of the milk or I might not have an affinity with the brand or the coffee machine that they're using or the way the barista's going about their work and I just go, no, I'll have a cup of tea, thanks. So, yeah, all my friends and family know they're, they're going to get a crap cup of coffee when I order a cup of tea. So <laughs> it's quite funny. Of course. Yeah. But then, for example, you know, restaurateurs like myself, you know, trying to find a local roaster, that's um, – roasters are every everywhere in Melbourne now. They are now. So I think – you know, Veneziano, probably when we started with you 15, 16 years ago, we uh, we sort of knew that coffee was quite, I suppose, commercial in those days and that there weren't a lot of people trying to, you know, do something different or breaking the boundaries of what what was done those days. So, the, you know, the likes of Coffex and Vittoria and some of these larger roasters were around, but no one was really direct sourcing, going to farms, finding really good coffees with unique profiles and starting to roast them. So we were very early in that stage, I suppose, 15, 16 years ago, we started doing that process. Now, you know, it's referred to as specialty coffee and and a lot of people in the industry now understand the difference between commercial grade coffee roasters and specialty coffee roasters. So we were sort of starting to be specialty you know, just on our own right without actually understanding really what that terminology meant. We did look to a few, so obviously we, we travelled the world quite a bit in those days and we, we stumbled across a company in the United States called Intelligentsia um, and we met one of the owners there, Jeff Watts, and Jeff spent something like six months of his year on an aeroplane flying around all these coffee countries sourcing coffee and we thought, geez, this sounds like fun. Uh, we better get into that part of it as well. So we were in default in specialty coffee before specialty coffee really became what it is today. Yeah. And what is it when you, you know, to clarify for people listening, what, how do you term specialty and commercial? So in technical terms, specialty um, is that, so coffee, you can, you can give coffee a score out of 100 from a, a green coffee perspective. You must be a certified Q grader to do that. And we have five of them in our building at Veneziano Coffee Roasters. What's a Q grader? So, so a Q grade is like a, <laughs> let's let's call it a sommelier to put it in food words, right? right? Yeah. Like they've got to pass this very intense course to be able to grade and score and cup and taste coffee. So if the coffee doesn't score above 80, then it's not considered specialty grade coffee, it's considered commercial grade coffee. So that's, that's a simplistic viewpoint. So Starbucks say they're specialty coffee because they buy coffee over 80, right? But 
for the specialty coffee officials uh, or, you know, people that live in the industry, you know, we want to make sure it's roasted correctly. We want to make sure the baristas are trained properly. We want to make sure you're using the right equipment. At the end of the day, it's about getting a, a unique experience in the cup, I suppose. And there's a lot of elements that go into doing that. It's not just about buying the right green. That's just one part of it. Yeah. So what did the business look, what did it look like back then? So that was uh, you and Rocky Veneziano? That's right. So Rocky Veneziano is a a uh, serial entrepreneur in the hospitality industry. I don't know how many cafes he's opened and closed over the years and restaurants. So I originally, so I worked for Dow Egberts in Australia and overseas for about eight years before we started Veneziano Coffee Roasters and I had the joy of employing Rocky um, at Dow Egberts. So that's like 25 years ago or something ridiculous. That's really showing how old we are now. But um, So I employed Rocky as a barista and I had this crazy entrepreneur I was trying to manage. I'm like, this is just chaos. But anyway. I was just about to say, you're taking a, an Italian, you know, minded entrepreneur and trying to squeeze him into big business, Yeah, you know, conformity. Yeah. That would have been I've funny. Got, I've got some very good stories about Rocky. So, Come uh, on in. Come on, can we have one? <laughs> so, so <laughs> For people uh, that don't know him, get, let's have a little description. He was involved in a pizza chain in the early days of it and uh, we was looking after a, a friend of mine was managing the, the Pollywood side. I don't know if you remember that down at Melbourne yeah. Exhibition and it had a little cafe in the front. Anyway, I was on the phone to him one day and he said, oh, Rocky's about to turn up with, uh, with 20 pizzas I've got a function on. I said, that's interesting. He's on the clock today for me. So I said... <laughs> So I said, when Rocky pulls in the driveway, can you tell him the coffee machine is flooding all over the floor and he needs to get out of the car and get in there and fix it straight away because it's a disaster? So, of course, I set myself up in the cafe waiting for Rocky. So Rocky's company car turned up, which was a Ford station wagon with the whole thing fogged up because, you know, it's got 20 pizzas in the boot, pulls up out the front of the cafe. Tim's like, you better get out and go in and see and, and check out this coffee machine. There's something completely wrong. So Rocky leaps out of the car, runs in, and there I am in the cafe, and he's like, oh, what are you doing here, Craig? I said, what are you doing here with my company car delivering 20 pizzas? Yeah, I'm on my lunch break, Dicko. I'm on my lunch break. I'm like, yeah, so there were... <laughs> so he's running a few little things on the side. Always had things on the side. One day I pulled up at the Hyatt Hotel... And uh, the uh, concierge on the door said, he said, oh, your boss is already here, so you better take your car downstairs. I said, what do you mean my boss is here? I am the boss. I'm the state manager for Victoria. And he goes, no, no, you know the guy that's got the Ferrari. I'm like, he reports to me. Like, it's not... <laughs> so I've always had my challenges with Rocky. So anyway, Rocky, Rocky and I became very good friends and um, I actually went overseas for a little while. And when I was overseas, Rocky started in- importing some coffee from Italy which was terrible, by the way. So we, um, in the end, we decided it was better off if we started roasting our own coffee. So I think we started with about oh, two or 300 kilos a week uh, we were roasting. There we had, you know, there were two staff and, and we had some pretty good networks because we'd worked at Dow Egberts for a long time. So we were able to pick up some customers and get growing. Uh, but yeah, it was a very small operation then. And then uh, I suppose along that journey, we uh, employed a guy who you know called David Macon uh, and we trained David up um, and won the Australian Brewster Championship. And that, you know, winning the Australian Brewster Championship now is not such a big thing, but 15 years ago, it was it was huge. Um, we were all over the age and, you know, the newspapers and, you know, all of a sudden everyone knew who Veneziano Coffee was because we'd won the Australian Barista Championship. So so that really put us on the map um, and got us going. And Dave won 
Australia twice. Uh, he managed to come second in the world. So we had a pretty good run in those early days with David and the team. And David's obviously gone on to establish his own coffee business now, which is Axel Coffee Roasters, which is also a very successful business. Yeah. So in terms of traveling and sourcing, when did this thing start coming together where you thought, you know what, this is going to go gangbusters? So David was competing at a world level. Um, I got certified to become a world barista judge. Uh, so I was going to these world competitions. Um, obviously, we had a competitor at that stage. So he just started meeting lots of people. And there were only 50 World Brewster Championship judges at the time in the world when I signed up to do that. So you got to meet all these incredible people from all over the world. So some of them are from um, other roasting companies, you know, in the world. Some of them are from farms. So you, you got to meet these probably, you know, 50 of the best coffee people in the world going to all these events. And that's where we really started networking and really getting to, I suppose, understand where other people got their green from, what they were doing at farm level. So it was really just a huge networking opportunity. And then from there, we just started traveling and you know we went to Brazil, Colombia, Guatemala, India, El Salvador. Uh, we've been to all sorts of places all over the world trying to source coffee so and now I don't get on the plane anymore it sounds romantic but I said it sounds like a dream job. Yeah no it's not much of a dream job so we've had a few interesting stories on the way. I remember going to Guatemala and apparently there's this amazing farm up in the hills, it's got its own microclimate and, you know, the coffee that comes from here is really unique unique because of where it is in the hills and all these sorts of things. I'm like, okay, well, we've got to go and check this place out and see what it's all about. So um, we're, I think we actually went to El Salvador first where we had the experience of hopping in the grower's bulletproof vehicle. Uh, and actually before I left, my wife said to me, you have to get hostage insurance before you go in case you go in case you go missing in El Salvador or Guatemala. And I'm like, oh, great. Okay, this sounds like it's going to be an awesome trip. So we went. See, I think before you'd even get to that point, <laughs> I'll be going, which airline are we flying into El Salvador with? And what's the safety record? Are we going to make it? That would have been the first question. Not that I'm a, you know, a travel that worries too much, but that's the first question, let alone armoured vehicle. We, we had to find some decent coffee, right? It's really important, Gary. So uh, we did El Salvador. That was fine. I said to the guy, I said, you know, my wife made me get hostage insurance and, and the, our grower there uh, said, oh, Craig, don't worry, they're not after you, they're after me because I'm a farmer and a business person. They think I'm, you know, think I'm quite rich. So anyway, we did our Salvador and we, that, that's fine. Then we went off to Guatemala. So, and I actually had a customer with me. So I had one of our major customers uh, in Melbourne with us at the time. Um, and the grower picked us up. The customer hopped in the front and I hopped in the back seat with this other guy. And this other guy's sitting there with a pistol in his hand, cocked, ready to go. And I'm like, what's with this guy? And he said, oh, he's the bodyguard. I go, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, yeah, we have to have a bodyguard in Guatemala. I'm like, what goes on here? Oh, sometimes, you know, you pull up at the lights, a guy will pull up in his motorbike, he put a gun to your head through the window and say, give me your passport and your wallet and then drive off. And if you don't, he'll probably shoot you. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? This is crazy. We're in Guatemala City we're having dinner in a beautiful restaurant, but outside of the restaurant, there's like... 50 bodyguards wandering around having a smoke and a chat. I mean, it'd be the last place you'd go and attack if you, uh, you know, you wanted to go and find someone because there's all these bodyguards out the front. So, well, all, so all attached to customers who are inside the restaurant. 
Correct, but they're all like outside just having a smoke and a chat with their guns, you know, hanging around in case something happened, I suppose. So, yeah, and then, and then it was a, a six-hour four-wheel drive up some hill, four-wheel drive track, serious four-wheel driving into the middle of nowhere. I mean, I must admit, once we got there, it was pretty amazing scenery. Um, and, you know, Guatemala's obviously been through some pretty tough times with gorillas trying to take things over. And there are photos up there of all the farmers and the pickers with machine guns and guns lined up out the front of this farm, protecting it from the gorillas trying to invade it. So, yeah, some pretty amazing stories from, from that particular farm and a pretty amazing experience. But, yeah, I don't, I'm not allowed to go to Origin anymore. I send uh, all our roasters think it's really cool fun to sit on a plane for 30 hours and, and get in a four-wheel drive for four hours to go and find the most awesome coffee in the world and I'm a bit done with that. But when you got to that farm, I mean, how did it feel? I mean, it, if it was beautiful, surely the pleasure and pain makes the experience even more special. Yeah, it was. And it did have, and they sort of explained it all while we were there, it did have sort of its own little unique microclimate. So coffee was drying out on these great big concrete patios, as you normally do. And then in the afternoon, they'd sweep all the coffee up, which I hadn't seen before, and put it in like these huts at the back of the drying platforms. And I said, oh, what are you doing? And they said, oh, the, well, the rain comes in any every afternoon, so we don't want the coffee to get wet because then it'll ferment and do other things. So... Yeah, so they had all these processes in place to still be able to dry the coffee, even though they had this weird microclimate up in the middle of nowhere. So it did mean they did produce some really unique Guatemalan coffees, which um, well, I think we still source some of them to this day, actually. So To yeah. give people an idea of, you know, because I think people have a limited idea of, of coffee. I think even, you know, as a restaurateur, I go, yeah, Arabica, Robusta, you know, yeah, I've got speciality coffee and it's got all these great flavours. It's a, it's a complex thing, isn't it? And a bit and it's been described to me a bit like wine. So you think of a grape variety like Chardonnay or Semillon or Shiraz, which we're quite, you know, happy to chuck those words around. And coffee's the same kind of thing, right? There's not just one cherry or berry. No, so there I think there's something like 3000 varietals of the Arabica coffee plant. There's Typica, there's Bourbon and there's there's all sorts of things and different varieties grow more successfully in different climates. So generally certain countries will only grow certain varieties, a bit like wine, right? It only certain varieties work better in certain climates than in others. So in coffee there's there's the varietal which will give certain traits of flavour, but then there's also the processing method. So and it's not that different to wine, right? Do I ferment it with the skin or not? And in coffee, it's the same sort of thing. So there's a, there's probably, there's a few more now, but uh, generally there's about three different processing methods and those processing methods also create a different flavour profile to that coffee. And then there's also what the roaster does with it. So what profile does he roast it to? How light is it? How dark is it? What's the curve of the roast profile? All those things also affect the flavour. And then there's the the person at the end, which is the barista who can also, you know, we can give them the most awesome coffee in the world and they can still stuff it up sometimes. So, <laughs> um, you know, so there's a, there's a hell of a lot that goes into getting that, you know, amazing cup of coffee that you get in the morning from your cafes, yeah. Yeah. Do we pay enough for a coffee? Uh, probably not, no. Probably nowhere near enough. What do you reckon it should be worth? I mean, we'll talk about, you know, where coffee comes from and some of the problems that the coffee industry faces, but how much do you reckon we should be paying for a coffee? Yeah, look, I think the lowest point of the chain is obviously where the where the pickers are. Now, some of these pickers in these countries are only getting 
you know, between five and eight US dollars for a whole day's work. That whole day's work, many people have probably never been to a coffee farm, but they're physically picking all these cherries under a bush by hand. Um, they're collecting them all. They're putting in great big baskets and they're carrying them up to a, a central point or station or to a truck that takes them to a central point. So it's very hands-on labour, very hard work. And I think trying to get more money back to that level of person on the ground is really what we need to focus on. And look, the specialty coffee roasters, all the people that I know in the industry, certainly are very focused on making sure that their farmers and their growers are paying all their staff correctly to the best that they can and and are being looked after at that level. But that's the thing that needs to be fixed more than anything. I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One Australia or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. What are the challenges, I mean, with the relationships that you have with, you know, the farmers, you know, whether they're in Colombia or Brazil or what are the kind of challenges they're facing that you know of? So one of the biggest issue is that the pickers is an ageing population, i.e. All the, all the kids in these countries don't want to grow up and be pickers. They're probably, we probably have done a pretty good job as an industry of getting money back towards the children and making sure they've got schools and books and computers and these sorts of things, which means they're becoming educated. So when they grow up, they want to get out of the smaller communities that they're living in and off to the cities and try and get a job and a career. So, you know, the ageing population of the picking community is going to continue to, I suppose, put pressure on the industry. Yeah. And various governments. Of various governments with... with with completely different uh, agendas maybe to what uh, we think they should be, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've heard of all sorts of things from, you know, whether it's taxing or coercion, you know, things like this that all present major problems for people that are in a very difficult industry in places that we don't think of when we're drinking our latte. Yeah, and even, you know, recently now I know in um, Colombia with some of our co-ops we've dealt with there, they've had because of COVID and the restriction of movement uh, around the country, uh, they've been unable to get pickers to some of the farms because the pickers are like transient. So they come in for the picking season, right? Um, so they come in for picking season, they pick the crop and then, the, you know, they go back to their communities or whatever. But because of, the res- because of COVID and some of the restrictions on travel, some of the farmers have just had to let their crop go. So... Yeah, even even COVID's having a significant impact at, you know, simple levels like that back at farm level. So not only dealing with normal things that farmers do, like, you know, the climate and, you know, the crop and insects and all the rest of it, they're now dealing with lots of lots of other things. Yeah, that's right. So it's pretty challenging, yeah. And I think, you know, long-term coffee pricing is going to come under a lot of pressure. I mean, the the world consumption is increasing Climate change is having an effect on where we can grow coffee and uh, how effective it is. So, you know, you've sort of got this demand going this way and the ability to grow going the other way. So 
look, you're going to end up paying more for your coffee. It's just, uh, it's just going to happen. So in terms of some of your favourite relationships that you've developed over the years, I mean, obviously I know your brand very well and you, some of the information about you, your growers and stuff, and that's obviously fascinating. But on a personal you know, level, what are some of your longer relationships and, that you've had and who are these people? Who are the people behind the, the coffee? Yeah, so probably my longest-term relationship is a, is a guy in India called Nishant. Now, interesting, so I've been to Nishant's farm several times, not enough according to him. I was supposed to be there every year. But Nishant is a sixth, and, you know, as Australians, we struggle with this concept. He's a sixth-generation coffee farmer. So, you know, this, this farmland that, that he's got in India has been six generations. Like, it's crazy. So I met um, Nishant at a specialty a coffee association trade show in the US one day. I was introduced by a mutual coffee friend. They, they said, oh, you should talk to Craig because uh, robusta is generally a bit of a dirty word in the industry, but we had always used a percentage of robusta in one of our blends in Australia. Nishant had the best robusta in the world and he had actually uh, moved his farm away from growing Arabica to grow what he would call specialty-grade Robusta. Because I'll st- stop you there for a second, because when I think Robusta, I think cheap, cheaper coffee. I don't know why that is. Is it because it goes into freeze-dried freeze coffee, right? It's because it is often in instant and it is often very low-grade, but what you need to understand is Arabica comes in grades of AA all the way down to Z, and Robusta has a, a slightly different grading system, but a similar concept. So I can give you 100% Arabica coffee that tastes like licking the road out the front, tastes like bitumen, because it's all full of, you know, defects and all this sort of stuff. But, I, you know, I can give you a high-grade Robusta that, that won't have any of that. So there is a bit of uh, a myth in that, that it's not necessarily true. But, yes, traditionally a lot of it's used high volume and used for instant coffee, so that's why it has a problem. So the commercial part of the business has kind of pushed it that way and that's what we've ended up with. Yeah, whereas we always used a little bit of Robusta in one of our blends because in Australia, let's face it, we don't drink coffee, we drink milk and Robusta helped carry the flavour I throw through the milk a little bit better. So we've always had a blend and funnily enough, it's always been our largest blend in our business that's always had some Robusta in it. So met Nishant at this trade show and I was chatting to him and he said, oh, how much Robusta do you go through? And I said, I think at the time we went through like two or three containers of Robusta a year. So that was something like, you know, nearly 60 tonne of Robusta. And I think his farm was only producing like 120 or 130 tonne at the time. So he was like, i got to get this guy um, over to the farm. So um, I, I all of a sudden won this cupping competition that was going on on his stand, not that I ever cupped anything, and uh, won a trip to India. Yeah, I went to, I went to Nishant's farm maybe 10 years ago and we bought a pallet of coffee to test it. You know, moving forward 10 years later, we, we take a group of people to Nishant's farm every year, generally care counts and new staff, so that might be eight or ten people. And Nishant comes here every year, uh, visits our roastery, and we take him out to visit our customers that use his coffee. Um, and I would consider Nishant uh, a very close friend of mine, comes and has dinner with the family and all those sorts of things. So we've, we've built a really close relationship. Both our businesses have grown dramatically over that ten years, so we've sort of helped one another, I suppose, grow and become what both those businesses are today. So it's a really nice story. And we we are quite involved with Nishant and what he gives back to his local community. So we know, you know, what he's spending money on with the local schools, 
whether it's books, computers, desks, all those sorts of things. So he's in quite an isolated spot of India. So the community that lives around his farm is really reliant on him for, for income and for supporting, supporting the kids and the children for education. So it's a really nice story. What were you, I've been to India a lot, actually. What were your first impressions of, you know, driving out? Where, where, where was your nearest city? Bangalore, maybe, or down south? Yeah, so we, fl- we fly into Bangalore and then we go out to uh, the Chikmangalore region. So we generally go through uh, Mysore, uh, so we can go to the Mysore Palace. Oh, I mean, just the pace of that place is out of control, you know, just trying to cross the road out the front and there's a thousand vehicles on it and you're with Nishant and he goes, we just walk, Craig. And I go, what do you mean you just walk? He goes, no, we just walk, follow me. And he just walks straight out and all these, you know, little rickshaws and stuff are, <laughs> are driving around him. And I'm like, oh, this is just insane. You've got to be kidding. So You, you don't develop road rage when you're in India because your job is just to look forward and swerve around anything that happens to be in front of you or pulls out in front of you. It's good advice. Yeah. So that was uh, pretty intimidating. But I suppose what, what was interesting about India is there's, which we don't see obviously in Australia, we, there's everything from the person that lives under the tarp on the side of the road um, all the way up, obviously, to the to the very rich. Uh, and there's every person in the community in between, I suppose, in that thing. So I suppose seeing that for the first time, uh, I mean, I'd, I'd travelled the world a bit, but, yeah, seeing that there for the first time is probably a little bit confronting and it takes you a while to get your head around it. But it's obviously strengthened the relationship. And, I mean, it's, it's lovely to hear that that relationship's gone on for so long. I just heard you say there when you said milk in your coffee, there was a little kind of disdain. Here in Australia, because no. we have milk in our coffee. <laughs> I mean, because it couldn't be more complicated. I know from, you know, running the cafes and restaurants that I have, I always used to joke, I'd go to a table of, say, four women who just stopped in for a coffee, and I'd go, four cappuccinos or four lattes, you know, with a little smirk, and they go, ha, 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 and then they go, no, can I have a half-strength, hot, decaf, soy latte? And that's one order. So people have to understand that when that gets put through the machine on the docket, it's like two inches long of little adjustments. And then the next person is a double strength, not too hot, you know, half skim. And you just put your head in your hands. <laughs> then they complain that their coffee's taking a long time. And the poor barista's trying to decipher computer code up at the docket machine. Yeah, and now we've got baristas with maybe three grinders lined up and we're offering single origins and, you know, different a blend for black coffee and a blend for milk coffee. So, you know, and then someone wants a chai and now we've got plant-based milks and, you know, so the, the poor baristas these days, like, what a nightmare. Every I think every coffee they probably make is different, so... It's yeah. hard work. What was I saying about should we pay more for coffee? Yeah, <laughs> pay the baristas more as well. <laughs> yeah, it's hard work. Absolutely. But, yeah, look, black, so, black coffee has actually made a bit of a comeback in the last five years, particularly filter. So a lot of the uh, a lot of specialty cafes now offer filter coffee. It's generally a more premium coffee that's sourced for that. So it's not like, you know, people relate filter coffee to the old jugs that we used to have in hotels that, that sat on the hot plate for three hours and we wonder why it's stewed and, yeah, bad. So everyone thinks that's filter coffee, whereas if you get a really high-grade coffee, you roast it properly and you make it properly, you know, it's nearly like a tea experience. Um, So a lot of the really good specialty, uh, most of the good specialty coffee outlets now will offer filter coffee. And I think with the health issues and stuff or things around dairy, some people have either, there's certainly a shift to plant-based milks and there is a shift to black coffees. And a lot of the traditional long black drinkers have moved to filter coffee. 
So filter coffee has made a bit of a comeback actually at, at home and also in cafe world. Yeah, and it has in my mind too, just recently, you know, because we've obviously gone into collaboration with, or I've gone into collaboration with you. Yeah. I tasted the Pinnacle series. I think there was a cupping and a tasting and I'm opening these bags of coffee and even, I mean, I'm a wizened old restaurateur, you know, and I open these bags and I just go, my God, the different aromas coming out of those coffees, you know, from fermented cocoa to berries. And if you put if you put that through the espresso, it actually, I think it killed it. I, try, I tried it both ways. I'd do like a pour over a plunger, which is like a tea experience, which I quite enjoy, which I've never really been into and now getting into. And then there's the espresso experience, which is something totally different from the same bean. Yeah, exactly. So th- I think the intensity of espresso nearly turns all these flavour profiles into too intense and you find it really hard to deal with what's going on when you make those coffees into a into an espresso format. But in a filter format, you can really, when we say, you know, you can taste you know, nectarines and cocoa and whatever, you can really taste all that stuff exactly. I mean, yeah, and that's pretty crazy, the Pinnacle series. I mean, there were coffees in there that, that cost, uh, you know, up to $400 for one kilo. So these are like the most unique coffees you'll find in the world. But they might, you know, they'll be hand-picked They'll check the sugar content with a brick meter to make sure they're all perfect. They will process these coffees. They're generally experimental lots, so some of them work and some of them don't, and it's about finding the the ones that work, I suppose. But, yeah, they're generally really, uh, you know, isolated and looked after to to give a particularly unique outcome. So they're pretty crazy coffees, those ones. That explains why I only got 20 grams of each then, if they were that expensive, but pretty unique. Yeah, so who would have thought in the middle of a pandemic you could roll out a Pinnacle series and sell coffees that are worth uh, $400 a kilo? So we had, I think we had 100, well, all these coffees were bought really for for the Melbourne International Coffee Expo, which happens once a year, and for the Barista Championships. And because they've all been delayed, put off, cancelled or whatever, like, what do we do with all these extreme coffees? We're like, well, let's try and just get some money back on them. Let's try and recoup what we've spent um, and get them out there while they're fresh and tasting their best. So that's where we came up with the idea for the Pinnacle Series. So I think we had 150 packs or something we were going to sell for $40 each. Uh, and we sold out in three days. So Shows the interest there. Yeah, and, and I think people are looking for stuff to do at home and unique experiences. You know, while we're all in lockdown, like us Melbournians are at the moment, and we probably didn't realise that at the time when we launched it. But, yeah, we were sold out in no time, and it was so successful we're thinking about doing it, you know, again later in the year or early next year. I think what it does for me is it, it reminds me that it is truly a unique experience. So there's so many things in life that you just take for granted. So you go and get your takeaway coffee. And it actually, over the last couple of years, has started to bug me. Like I grab a takeaway and I spend whatever it is, four or five bucks on a takeaway, and I slush it down and it's a milk-based beverage, all right? I'll put it out there, Greg. <laughs> and then, you know, I'm walking down the road, I go, I didn't even think about that. And yet what I've done is consume something that really very labour-intensive, has travelled halfway around the world, has gone through numerous hands and processes, and it's, if you rewound the clock, it would be something that would be at the top of the tree that only the very wealthiest people could enjoy. But that Pinnacle series for me, I was researching the grower. You know, there was one particular one. It was, I think it's Fazenda, California yep. in Brazil. And I did the research and I think it was Cool Zone was the process that yep. they, they use. Is it Cool Zone? No, Cool Soul. Yeah, Cool Soul. Yeah. So he's using a particular process. I'm like, wow. You know, so really wrapped up. And then I drink the coffee. 
And just for that moment, even though I'm shut up in my house, that I get that little bit of a experience and now I care about it and now I'm prepared to pay for yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, it's quite, you don't probably really appreciate one kilo bag of coffee that basically is what would fill a hopper in a cafe until you've been to farm level. And when you go to farm level, that equates to five kilos of cherries that they've picked. So when you think about how much coffee we consume, you know, you look at one decent cafe is doing 50 kilos a week and that's 250 kilos of cherries that were picked by hand just for that one cafe to serve their coffee for that week. Like it's only when you go to origin and see what happens at that level do you really start to appreciate what happens back at our end. And I suppose that's not even taken into account the grading and the, you know, selection of particular no. coffee beans and the wastage, etc. So we don't think about it. I think now that I've learned a little bit more that I'd like people to think about it more, you know, when they drink the coffee, maybe drink less takeaway and actually sit in the cafe and drink it. Takes three minutes, enjoy it. Yeah, and I think, you know, people do jump up and down because baristas take a long time to to get your coffee or it takes, people wait longer than three minutes, I think they start to complain. But yeah, the barista, as you indicated before, every coffee order is probably different these days with four plant-based milks and everything else. You know, there's, from our side as a wholesale coffee supplier, there's a lot of effort goes into training those baristas to make a coffee properly and follow a particular process. You know, the good outlets now, I mean, I know this sounds silly, but they're, they're weighing every group handle of what coffee they're dosing in there before they go and put it in the coffee machine. Now, what that does is that makes sure that every time you go to that cafe, that coffee tastes the same. It's like baking. Everyone's been making sourdough, right? I'm sure if you get the recipe slightly wrong or you put the wrong amount of yeast in, it stuffs up the whole thing. Like baking is a is an art where you have to be very particular about measurements and so is making coffee. So I think we've got to appreciate to, to get that, to get a really, really good cup of coffee every day, tasting exactly the same. There's a lot that goes into behind that from sourcing of the green and coffee to roasting and also to the barista at the other end. So question with, obviously you've got a number of businesses under Veneziano. We've got some cafes, the, the biggest one of which is the new roastery in Richmond. Uh, how's, how's COVID affected the whole cafe coffee business? I mean, from the outside in, obviously devastating, uh, but what, what has it meant for you guys? Yeah, so we have actually four outlets. So we have a we have an espresso bar in Brisbane, an espresso bar in Sydney, in Surrey Hills, and then we have the large cafe in Melbourne, and we also have a small espresso bar in Adelaide. Inter- like obviously, everyone went to takeaway only. We transitioned all those places to have basic produce, so they all have bread, milk, eggs, dips. Uh, the Melbourne one's got alcohol, so that's obviously good. Uh, you can get a can of beer or a bottle of wine. Uh, so we tried to make them local precincts, I suppose, where you didn't have to go to the shop if you needed your basics. You could rock into our cafe, get your cup of coffee, get your coffee beans for home and also buy your milk bread or whatever to get you through the day. The interesting thing was the shift in retail coffee bean sales went through the roof. That was good. Uh, We also implemented a a system called Hungry Hungry where you could actually um, order your coffee and your food um, online over an app, pay for it, put your car rego in, drive up out the front of our outlet and our staff would walk up out the front like good old, you know, drive through, stick it through your window and you drove off. So we had hungry, hungry for pickup, hungry, hungry for drive-through, um, and all that. So I suppose we we really tried to focus on what can we do differently to keep these businesses viable. 
I mean, we're, we're in hard lockdown now, so in Victoria. So when people listen to this, maybe we've popped out of it. But um, the, the challenges for a small cafe must be enormous based around the fact there's all sorts of things to break, isn't there? This habit, you know, people go in and sit on one coffee for an hour, you know, they take up table space. I mean, what are the sort of problems that, that your customers have been going through? Yeah, well, I mean, to deal with that, we try, we put some support packages together for our, so a lot of customers were struggling to reopen. So we actually put some support packages together where, you know, we gave them so many kilos of coffee sort of upfront to, for free just to Get them. We knew if they got their doors open and started trading again, that they'd actually start to get some people through the place. So we had a number of programs in place. We were trying to encourage our customers to reopen, and even some some discounts for some of our uh, long term customers who were who were struggling. So we we had a number of customer care packages just to try and help them get open. Uh, we shared everything you know electronically with all the things we were doing, like the hungry hungry program and you know, um, setting up retail stands in all their cafes for them so they could sell coffee to their local community. So I suppose, you know, a lot of the stuff we learnt running our own cafes, we really we really encouraged and tried to roll that out to all our wholesale customers as well to, to help them survive, really. It's not about making money at the moment. It's about keeping all your staff employed and surviving so that on the other side of this, you've still got your team of people Hopefully we can go again whenever that day is. So it's certainly been a challenge for the, the business, that's for sure. Do you think there'll be changes based on what's happened that are, that are positive? I mean, like the, the contactless kind of delivery, you know, being able to order stuff on your iPhone or uh, I like the idea of being, you know, booking a spot, you know, like I've been to a couple of cafes where I go, yeah, I just need half hour and they book you half hour. You can prepay for your coffees if you want. And then the cafe knows that they've got two customers coming in, they'll consume four coffees, a sandwich, um, and they'll take the table and go after half an hour rather than using it like a pseudo office space, for example. Yeah, I mean, obviously there was a lot of negative press about people making bookings and no-showing. I think particularly in Sydney there was uh, some poor girl called Amy who uh, copped a bit of abuse for that. Um, We did exactly that in our cafe when we were allowed to open. We only had 20 seats, so we took bookings and made people prepay. It was a one-hour slot and you could pick, you know, your package, but it meant... You know, you paid in advance. There were no no-shows. We were able to maximise the opportunity of the cafe with, with maintaining social distancing. Uh, and I think people actually liked uh, being able to book. I think you're right. I think, you know, traditionally on a Saturday or a Sunday at our place, you might have to wait half an hour or an hour for a table. Now, that's not fun, right? And, and sort of ruins your weekend. So I think before COVID, hospitality was already under pressure from a margin point of view. You know, labour costs are high, rentals are high, uh, it was already hard to make a buck. And I think this has taught us there are other ways to run these businesses to reduce staff on the floor, maybe by ordering at your table, you know, having taking a booking and taking a prepayment like fine dining restaurants have been doing probably for a long time. So I think the hospitality industry will change after this. I think it will come out smarter and different. Why shouldn't you pay more if you're taking up a spot in my cafe for a coffee like you do in France or Italy than if you're getting a takeaway? It sort of makes sense. You want someone to come and serve it to you and give it to you. Maybe it should be six bucks. Yeah. Um, So on a positive side, you're moving the good portion of the business into online. Um, You can buy all your coffee gear. You can buy your different roasts and coffee. You know, this is something that a few roasters are doing, but you're you're jumping in with both feet. 
Yeah, we're, we're, we're really trying to focus on it. We've also, like a lot of the stuff you were touching on before about how do you weigh your coffee, how do you tamp it, how do you do all these things at home to get the best experience, what's the recipe for a plunger, for a Chemex, whatever, all those things are on our website. Um, there's also a heap of resources out there on YouTube if you're looking for that stuff. We've sort of taken it to the next level as well where we're really trying to give the home user all the tools they need to have the best coffee experience at home. So one of our staff, Jade Jennings, um, who's probably one of the the better baristas in Australia, I think she's come second in the Australian Barista Championship. She's at home home with two kids, um, as you can imagine, and still trying to do some work for us. So she has been busy doing all the home videos at home while she's at home with her children. So I think there's a really fun one on there where she actually gets her her daughter to come in and they... um, they teach you how to make the best hot chocolate for home. You know, even being able to do things like that with your staff differently, um, I think is also what we've learnt during this period to how can we still engage these staff, keep them busy and get them doing something that adds value to our business. If you had said to me before COVID, hey, Craig, by next week, I want your customer service department, your finance department, all these departments operating from home, I would have said, you are dreaming. That's never going to happen. That's like a six-month project to get organised and blah, blah, blah. You know what? We did it in three days and they've been working at home since March. So why do I need all these offices? I think that's that's the big thing is will the, will the, will the CBDs of Melbourne and Sydney never be the same again? That's, that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Yeah, it's changing habits for sure. I mean, all you've got to do is get Rocky Veneziano to drop pizzas off his in his Ferrari, and then you've got the whole thing sealed up as far as I'm concerned. The old entrepreneur. Because you know what it's doing for a lot of business people, and we've discovered this on yep. you know podcast, is that it's put them back into a point where they first started out. You know, it's that re-engagement to a level where if I don't do it, you know, we're going to lose everything and it's like back to square one, uh, treat it like a new business, and then that's when the creative juices, you know, start flowing. It's not going to look the same as it did before, right? I think we all agree that. What's it going to look like on the other side? Well, who knows? Who knows? I've got bated breath in terms of how the whole hospitality, our you know, our cafe culture that we're so proud of, you know, how that's going to turn out, how it's going to look like in 2021, 2022. I mean, none of us know. We can only guess and we can only just keep working, you know, to think our way around it. But what I've enjoyed personally on many fronts, whether it's, you know, it's food or in this case coffee, it's just there is a different level of enjoyment having it at home. You know, it's that sourdough that you talked about earlier. You can go and buy a loaf of bread, but as a cook making it, there's something really special about it. And my enjoyment of coffee just through this collaboration and doing a bit of the tasting and cupping and, you know, learning the blending, that's all one thing. But from an experience point of view, just flicking the coffee machine on, and it literally is, and what I've kicked myself for it, in the past, I've never got time to make myself a coffee, just straight out the door. And then I'll grab a takeaway down the road and not really enjoy it, it takes me the same amount of time to make a really good cup of coffee as it does to infuse my wife's mint tea bag. So I've gone, you know what, this is a habit I'm going to keep. And so it becomes something a bit more special. Yeah, I think we have all slowed down a bit, right? Like we've tried a few of those different cooking things. I think we've had HelloFresh and uh, we've got another one at the moment, which I think is Atlas Masterclass. And you get the box in. Shane Dealey is, uh, you know, provador. So it's yep, there's you know, a whole there's pile lots of, them of and, things happening. And, and to do that, I suppose, with the kids, because you're all at home, instead of someone rushing home and putting dinner up, you know, now you've got the time to go, okay, kids, let's get all the ingredients out, let's chop it up, let's cook together. 
you know, I think there, you know, it's a bit like you making your coffee in the morning. We, we, we're all taking the time now to to do all these things that we all thought we were too busy for, but they're actually probably a lot more important than the things we were busy on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as much as we probably don't like being locked down there, there will be some uh, some good stuff come out of it on the other side. Absolutely. There's habits to keep. But let me make this very clear, Craig. I hate lockdown. I hate <laughs> so it. So do I. Don't worry. With a passion, you know. Yep. As much as I love making my own coffee, there's certainly days where I just go, seriously, can someone else make my coffee? And actually coming into the, the studio, you know, under, you know, special circumstances today, I got a coffee from downstairs. Gee, it was good. I thought my coffee was good. The barista down there does a good job. There's a difference between a try-hard amateur, which is me, and somebody who makes coffee for a living. Yeah. <laughs> Craig Dixon, I really appreciate you taking the time. And obviously, um, if people are curious, you don't have to just buy, you know, our collaborative uh, coffee that you can see, which is Gary's Speciality Coffee, but you can go to the Veneziano website. You can, you know, tap into the Single Origin or the Pinnacle Series if they pop up again. And there's lots of things that, you know, people can tap into and enjoy, right? Yeah, there certainly is, yeah. And there's a lot of information on there if you are, you just want your coffee to taste better at home, log on there and have a look. There's lots of resources that are going to help you just make your coffee experience better no matter what coffee you're using. So, Not a bad drug to be addicted to as far as I'm concerned. It's a good drug. As long as it stays legal, we'll all be fine. <laughs> Craig Dixon, thank you very much indeed. So here's my tips and tricks. And for this one, a little cheeky espresso martini. And for this, you'll need a cocktail shaker. If you don't have one, a clean jam jar with a lid that screws tightly. And all you do is put a good nip or a double nip of vodka, if you may, some coffee liqueur, a freshly brewed espresso. You want a good crema. And actually, if you use a hot espresso, you will get a great creamy, foamy espresso martini. Put a handful of ice in the shaker or in the jar, pop the lid on, make sure it's secured tightly, give it a good shake for 30 seconds, and then with a little flurry, pour it into a chilled glass, and then, finishing touch, chuck a couple of little coffee beans on top. And that is the Gary Regan Espresso Martini. Enjoy that. That one's on me. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Swalensky with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Darcy Thompson.